Welcome to SLU Law Summations, presenting brief looks at legal matters that matter to you by St. Louis University School of Law, located in the heart of downtown St. Louis. One of the most anticipated elections is upon us. Voter turnout has already reached record-setting highs. Legal issues and questions are at every turn. From voter protection, election litigation, poll access, and what the future could bring for healthcare and battling the COVID-19 pandemic, we have a lot to look at. In this special episode of Sula Summations, we will be tackling these issues with a handful of our faculty experts. Each of these faculty members have been given a question related to this year's election. They have pre-recorded their answers for us. I am Jessica Sacconi, Director of Communications, here to lead you through the conversations. Buckle up, we have a lot to cover. First, we have Professor Chad Flanders. Professor Flanders is a constitutional law expert who teaches election law. He was asked about the litigious nature of this election and what he could foresee happening. All right, I've been asked to talk about uh, what I foresee in terms of election litigation uh, in the coming months. So I will say just a general caveat, I think the, the, the odds that there's going to be greater litigation depends on whether the election is going to be close or not. If it's going to be a, a sort of a close race with the Electoral College, then there's going to be a lot of litigation in those states that are seen as essential to tipping the Electoral College one way or the other. If it's a landslide in one direction or another, there's going to be a lot less litigation because the litigation will frankly matter less. Two fronts of litigation. First, about mail-in ballots. Um, one issue is going to be when can you turn ballots in? When can they be counted? Suppose the, the ballot has to be uh, postmarked by a certain date, or suppose the ballot has to be in by election day at the polling place. To what extent can states still count them even if they come in late? There's going to be a lot of litigation about that. There's already litigation about where you can turn them in. Some states say if you have a mail-in ballot, you got to mail it back in. You can't just drop it off at the polling place. There may be litigation about whether it's okay to just drop it off at the polling place. And then, of course, there's going to be case-by-case litigation about ballots that aren't, for whatever reason, uh, filled out correctly. They, they don't have the right signature in the right place, or they're not notarized, or they don't... Uh, um, have the right ballot envelope. To the extent the election is close, there might be a lot of uh, litigation over individual ballots that might be thrown out because they don't comply with some requirements and people saying like, that's not an essential requirement, you should count it anyway. In-person voting will be an issue because I think there's going to be longer lines because they have to be social distance. You don't want to have a ton of people in the polling place. There are fewer fewer polling places because nursing homes and churches say we actually don't want a lot of people around here. There are fewer poll workers. A lot of states are having trouble recruiting poll workers. There may be problems where people um, are in long lines and may have to leave those lines. They want to come back and and vote. Um, Will uh, courts allow polling places to extend their hours or not? There's litigation about that in past elections. I expect there'll be similar litigation this year. Two quick points about broader issues. First, to what extent will the Supreme Court get involved? We've already seen a 4-4 tie in one uh, election lawsuit out of Pennsylvania. Amy Coney Barrett could break that tie. Will she get involved? Will the Supreme Court get involved generally? Second thing to watch is how do courts treat mail-in or absentee ballots? Are they treating them as part of the fundamental right to vote or are they treating them as a sort of a luxury? A lot of cases already have said, you know, the real right to vote is in-person voting. Mail-in voting is kind of a luxury, so states can regulate that pretty harshly. Will that change? That's what I'll be looking for, and uh, thanks. Now to the topic of access to the polls. We caught up with Professor Anders Walker. We asked him about the issue of security at polling locations, which has been a hot button issue for this election cycle. In a certainly divisive time, how will things like open carry and the suggestion of uniform police officers play out? Hi, thanks for having me on the podcast. So there are a few legal issues involved with carrying uh, weapons to polls. 
open carry, i.e. walking back and forth with a gun in front of a polling place, could be considered um, voter intimidation. That said, there is a First Amendment right to free speech, and that includes also uh, pro-gun speech. If open carry advocates want to show up at the polls, they may be asked by um, officials to stand a certain distance back. Some departments, some police departments are worried there's going to be violence. And so there are cities across the country where the police are planning to uh, have a presence at the polls. Now, some have argued that this may intimidate certain voters from voting. And I think police departments are sensitive to this. So my understanding is most departments are going to have election officials uh, standing by. And if they feel like someone is intimidating voters, they will ask them to step back. And if they don't step back, then they will uh, call police who may be nearby. And then the police will deal with uh, any possibility of violence. A lot of people are on edge, though, and we will just have to wait and see how this goes. On the topic of voter access, providing access to the polls for Americans living with disabilities has always been a challenge. We asked Professor Elizabeth Pendo, the Joseph Simeon Professor of Law, an expert on the ADA, what kind of issues have come to light with the pandemic causing added stress on the system. There are 61 million adults living with disabilities in the United States, which means that millions of Americans are eligible to vote in the November elections. The Americans with Disabilities Act was enacted in 1990 to address widespread discrimination against people with disabilities. Title II of the ADA applies to state and local governments, which means they must ensure full and equal voting opportunities for voters with disabilities. Equal opportunities include physical access to polling places, effective communication, including for people with vision or hearing impairments, and adjustments to policies or practices when that's necessary to accommodate individual needs. That could mean curbside voting or voting by mail. During the pandemic, voting by mail should be widely available to ensure access and also to ensure safety. For many voters with disabilities, voting by mail has always been the safest and most accessible way to cast a ballot because it allows them to avoid problems getting to the polls or waiting in line or dealing with physical barriers at polling places. According to a 2017 report by the General Accounting Office, roughly two-thirds of the polling places they examined had at least one barrier, like lack of parking, poor paths to the building, ramps that were too steep, or lack of a clear path to the voting area. But voting by mail has to be coupled with accessible in-person voting. Some people can't mark paper ballots and rely on accessible voting machines with earphones or other modifications in order to vote securely and privately. Another federal law, the Help America Vote Act, requires that individuals with disabilities have the same opportunity to vote privately and independently that everyone else enjoys. It also requires that each polling place have at least one accessible voting system in federal elections. Those accessible voting machines must be working and ready for voters who need them, 
And it's critical that poll workers be trained on the rights of voters with disabilities and how to ensure access to voting and voting machines. McDonald Professor of Justice and American Society Emeritus John Ammon spent a good part of his career advocating for the rights of the blind citizens of Missouri. He once fought for a change in Missouri voting that made it easier for blind Missourians to vote. We asked Professor Ammon, what kind of problems do you think this population might face now and how can they be addressed? We engaged in litigation a few years ago representing the Missouri Council of the Blind to ensure people with visual impairments could vote independently in elections. For people with disabilities, there are several options, including absentee voting and mail-in voting this year in particular. The pandemic has raised awareness about how people with various conditions, including the coronavirus, can get their ballot and vote despite the adverse condition. So in many ways, this year has been educational for the part of the public that, which has no disability and had no disability in the past, but now wants to be able to vote by absentee ballot, for example. So it's it's been an educational process for the, the non-disabled community. Uh, we want to make sure the blind uh, and anyone with a disability can vote on election day at their polling place. For many people, the experience of going to the polling place with your fellow citizens is a big part of what democracy is all about. So people with visual impairments can request large print ballots, but the ultimate assistance is a talking voting machine, and these should be available at every precinct. These machines read the ballot to a person, allow them to touch anywhere on the screen to indicate their approval of a candidate. The person wears headphones so that the information and their vote remain confidential. We learned from many blind people that before these talking voting machines were um, prevalent, they had to have an aide go with them to the polls and read them their ballot out loud, and then the person would give their choices out loud. Obviously, that was a violation of their privacy, so the new machines allow a blind person to vote at the polls in person and privately. There are still a lot of unknowns about the post-election world. Most immediately, we have a current administration who has not promised a smooth transition of power. We asked adjunct professor Greg Willard, former personal aide to President Gerald Ford, about that exact issue. How do you think this will play out depending on the outcome? What can either party do in response? A constitutional cornerstone, which we Americans universally respect after an election, is the orderly transition of power. Unfortunately, during this 2020 election season, there has been much loose talk about whether the peaceful transition of presidential power is at risk this year. There are, in reality, two categories of the transfer of presidential power, constitutional and practical. The constitutional transfer mechanism is clearly specified in our Constitution and will happen automatically at noon on January 20th. At that time, the president selected by the Electoral College or, if necessary, the House of Representatives will automatically become president, period. Constitutionally, there is virtually nothing that the losing candidate and his supporters can do to halt the transfer of the presidency at noon that day. The practical transfer of presidential power is known as the presidential transition. It typically begins on the day after the popular vote is determined and continues through Inauguration Day. Once a presidential transition is up and running, it involves literally thousands of individuals working throughout the entire federal government with millions of dollars of taxpayer assistance 
to make the transition and the January 20 transfer of power as seamless as possible. In the 230-year history of our Constitution, America has failed only once to peacefully transfer presidential power. Irrespective of the outcome and the disappointment that millions may inevitably have, all Americans must make certain, absolutely certain, that the peaceful transfers of power from this election, whether in City Hall or the White House, are carried out smoothly and as a shining beacon for all to admire. Should we have a change in party, there is a lot that a new administration must address in regards to United States foreign policy. For this, we turn to Professor Monica Eppinger, an expert in international law and former foreign service officer. A unified country only benefits us in foreign policy, so anything that the new administration can do to get us to pull together will only help us in foreign policy, and we need it because we are facing two monumental challenges. The first, of course, is the coronavirus. The virus does not respect boundaries. It does not know borders. We need to pull together to address it. We need to collaborate with other governments and work with peoples in other places in order to develop a vaccine, administer a vaccine, and get it distributed. Containing the virus has to happen in other countries, and it's in American interest for it to happen in other countries, because if we only contain it in the United States, then if it is still active somewhere else, it still exists to come back and haunt us. So we need to approach this the way that we have approached other health challenges, smallpox, polio, and we need to work together to develop a vaccine and to get it distributed and administered around the world. Those channels of collaboration and cooperation and those mechanisms for figuring out what works best for our citizens in pulling together, all of those are a dress rehearsal for the even bigger challenge, which is climate change. The planet is on fire. 4% of California is on fire. The eastern slope of the Rockies is on fire. Similar fires have broken out in Siberia, in Brazil, in Australia. We are facing a fundamental change in climate, and it is going to take all of us collaborating and cooperating to figure out how to address this. That means that whatever mechanisms for cooperation and collaboration that we build in addressing the coronavirus should be seen as platforms should be seen as dress rehearsals, should be seen as experiments, should be seen as moves toward a future in which we are working together to address climate change. That is the number one priority for the new administration, and that is the number one priority for all of us. The next administration will likely be the ones to roll out the coronavirus vaccine. We asked Professor Anna Santos-Richman, an expert in FDA law and policy and vaccine development, about what we can expect from our federal agencies and how this vaccine race will play out. The most important agency here is going to be the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA. They have the task ordinarily of serving as gatekeepers to new drugs coming to market, and that includes vaccines. For them, the big choice, um, and this is going to happen relatively soon after the election, is going to be to decide whether to authorize or approve a vaccine. 
The standards for approval is a little bit more stringent. Um, the sponsor of the vaccine has to demonstrate the vaccine is safe and effective, whereas the authorization of an unapproved vaccine means that the FDA will allow the vaccine to come to market based on a reasonable expectation or belief that the vaccine may be effective. So the language and the standard here uh, a little a little lesser than the one that applies um, to a to a full approval. So FDA um, has not yet quite uh, hinted at what it might be uh, doing, but it will have to choose between these two uh, approaches. And there's been pressure pre-election for um, FDA um, to um, decide on a more expedited timeline, so an authorization instead of the final um, approval. But many experts have been cautioning FDA not to do that. And most recently, on October 22nd, FDA indicated it might not go uh, for um, the faster of the two pathways to bring vaccines to market. So that's definitely something to be watching for. And finally, the coronavirus pandemic and the vaccine race are certainly not the only health-related issues the next administration will face. With a confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett and the upcoming Supreme Court case on the ACA, millions of Americans are beginning to worry about their health care coverage. For this, we turned to Jane and Bruce Robert, professor of law, Sydney Watson, and asked her about her predictions of health care coverage and the ACA, depending on the outcome of the election. Our presidential candidates have offered two very different approaches to health care coverage and the Affordable Care Act. President Trump continues to attack the law and promise something new and better, but we still don't have any specifics. On the other hand, Vice President Biden has been very specific about he, how he will support and expand the Affordable Care Act. Former Vice President Biden has specific proposals that address some of the key shortcomings of the Affordable Care Act. He proposes to raise the income limits for federal premium tax credits so more moderate income families can get relief from high premiums through the marketplace. Vice President Biden would reduce cost sharing for marketplace plans. And finally, he has proposed a federal fallback to provide coverage for low-income adults living at or near the poverty level in the 12 states that have refused to implement the Affordable Care Act's Medicaid expansion. And in terms of the Supreme Court and the Affordable Care Act, right after the November 3 election on November 4, we will have oral arguments in Texas v. California, a case that threatens to overturn the Affordable Care Act, a case that is backed by the Trump administration. Justice Amy Coet Barrett will be a key vote in that case, and we will all be listening to see what questions she asks during oral argument. But remember, Texas v. California is a statutory analysis case. Congress can pass legislation fixing what the plaintiffs complain about in that case. So keep an eye out, not just on the presidential race, but on those Senate and House races. This election will have a big impact on the Affordable Care Act and health care coverage for millions of Americans. Thank you all for joining us for this special election episode of SLU Law Summations. It is clear from our conversations today that legal issues touch on every part of this election and will play a major role moving beyond Election Day. If you have one takeaway from it all, it's this. Go vote. Thank you for joining us for SLU Law Summations, produced by St. Louis University School of Law.